Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. It's Made in America Week, everybody. Donald Trump pushing uh, American products, companies, and uh, yes, American ingenuity. Uh, you'll notice that today, despite Friday's uh, outrage and, and what happened last week with a certain Russia story, which I'm going to try not to spend too much time on today because I feel like everyone spends all their time on this in the media these days. And, and where do we get with any of it? Uh, not very far. In fact, I think there was a sense of relief and uh, a lot of people who are sick and tired of the constant Russia headlines view the Trump administration focus on the agenda on Made in America as a welcome uh, respite. And, and not just a respite, it's much more important. This is more important. This matters. Uh, this is helpful to the country. We want a more robust uh, manufacturing sector. We want better jobs. I mean, the unemployment rate right now, I think, is 4.7%, but workforce participation is low. And what are those jobs? And I'll talk to you a bit about that. So it was, it was I have to say, it was nice today. It was relaxing. It, it was reassuring that there were stories out there. There was something to talk about other than some crazy conspiracy about how the Kremlin is really running America or something, or the Kremlin through the U.S. election, whatever it may be. Um, it was nice to be able to focus a bit on policy. Now, on the positive side of that, you have made in America, you have American jobs and manufacturing and companies and progress and international trade agreements. On the not-so-positive, but we need to look at it and spend some time on it, you, of course, have the Republican health care repeal and replace effort, which is not a repeal and replace effort, really. It's a uh, modify and shift around effort, but better than nothing. I would agree with those who say that. It, it is better than nothing. It's better than an alternative, which is just a continuation of Obamacare as is. But you had the president say, let's first talk about the happy side of things or the positive, the uh, encouraging tone from the administration on American jobs, companies, manufacturing, made in America, a label that has a, a degree of pride and tie, of course, and ties into much of the messaging from this administration from the start, which is that it's it's OK to be proud of America and what we do and what we make in America. And maybe it is time to look at some of the agreements we have, some of our economic relationships with fresh eyes. Maybe some of those very old trade agreements, including NAFTA, need to be updated to better reflect 
the current circumstances of the U.S. economy. And it's okay to try and help American citizens and Americans in the workforce and uh, in, in the various manufacturing sectors, even if it means that we put another country perhaps at something of a less advantageous position. We don't have to suffer. We don't have to be manufacturing martyrs, right? We're allowed to try and better our situation, and our government should be working to better our situation, too. This is, I think, the overall messaging from the administration, and maybe we can hear it. Oh, and I, so I will get into health care, but that's that's a little bit more... Uh, I'm a little more sour on that circumstance. But first, yay, happy stuff. Let's talk about the president. Uh, optimistic, better word than happy. It's not happy. It's not happy, per se. It's optimistic. An economic optimism coming from the president of the United States, which I'm uh, everyone that I speak to uh, here in, in New York and in my my circles, including Wall Street types and uh, people that work at huge companies. They're like, look, the stock market is doing really well. The economy is actually in, in good shape. The prognostications about Trump destroying the economy within months in office is just complete nonsense. In fact, you can point to a lot of indicators and say that Trump has been good for jobs and and companies and, and manufacturing specifically. Uh, but here's here's what the president had to say. Remember, it's made in America week. They've got a showcase going on down in D.C., there's a feeling of optimism, and here's what the president had to say about that. No. Made in the USA. Remember in the old days, they used to have made in the USA, made in America, but made in the USA. We're going to start doing that again. We're going to put that brand on our product because it means it's the best. And he went on to say that his administration, of course, top to bottom and through all of its various agencies and branches and departments, is supportive of this effort. Every member of my administration shares the same goal, to provide a level playing field for American workers and for American industry. We want to build, create, and grow more products in our country using American labor, American goods, and American grit. When we purchase, the profits stay here, the revenue stays here, and the jobs, maybe most importantly of all, they stay right here in the USA. So the messaging from the president is powerful, and, and I like the I like the optimism, I like the positive tone, and to have a president who is clearly uh, not just a friend to big business, because I think it's important to remember that Democrats, big government, and big business go hand in hand. They like each other a lot, actually. You see, government regulation is anti-competitive because larger, more established entities are much more likely to be able to bear the brunt of the costs and the slowdowns and the problems from government regulation. So it crowds out the smaller players, the upstarts. It is the small business owner. It is the striver. It is the one who is struggling and trying to make it. Those are the people, those are the businesses and the entrepreneurs and the employees and owners who are most harmed by a government that views itself as a necessary intermediary between the market and the uh, those who, who buy in the market, the market and customers, right? The government has to step in between the supplier and the buyer. So, 
as we look at what's going on with the Trump administration, I think that that's important to keep in mind that he's pushing for manufacturing, but he's also pushing for uh, business growth, small businesses. And this is a, a at least bipartisan, rhetorically speaking, bipartisan uh, area of faith. Both sides believe strongly in small businesses. They say they're the engine. Every time there's an election, you'll hear them say they're the engine of the economy. But Democrats make it, especially with their regulations and taxation, incredibly hard for those small businesses to succeed. But a big focus here, because Trump's talking about trade and international trade agreements and and made in the USA and making more stuff here. A big part of all of this is, like I said, the messaging from the top. It's a signal to the market, a signal to employers, to corporations that they have a friendly ear and perhaps a less stern hand in the White House um, in terms of interfering in their affairs unnecessarily, and also more of an advocate on the global stage. These are all good things. Now, here's where things get a little more complicated and difficult. The reality of U.S. manufacturing is that we are more productive than ever before. The truth about U.S. manufacturing is that we are making a whole lot of stuff and our output, if you make it in constant dollars stretching back for, uh, for 30 years, the highest it's ever been. So we're actually doing really well uh, in terms of what we make and selling it on the world stage. But there have been some shifts. There have been some changes. There have been disruptions in industries, most notably for, well, people in the Detroit area and some of the other Rust Belt areas of the country, or some of the Rust Belt areas of the country, there, uh, the declines in automotive manufacturing and in some of the major industries that are iconic, that have a, a resonance in the American mind, that are more than just businesses. They feel like they're somehow part of the American industrial soul, right? They have withered away a bit in some cases gone away entirely it depends right general motors is still alive uh, there are still u.s man u.s based uh, automotive companies but they are not what they used to be um, that's not to say that they're not making a whole lot of cars though it's just they're not employing people in the same numbers you look at textiles for example and um, i actually know quite well some people who work in the uh, textile and, and clothing manufacturing side of things and it's just almost impossible for the U.S. It's, it's not that there's some terrible regulation that's stopping T-shirts from being made in the USA. Uh, it's very hard to compete because a T-shirt that's made in uh, Vietnam or Malaysia or Peru uh, is just as good as a T-shirt that's going to be made here. We don't have a competitive advantage in some of these fields. So textiles, where there are already razor-thin margins, very hard for there to be a return of some of that to America. And look, there's a reason why you can go into uh, Walmart. By the way, over Fourth of July weekend, I was doing some shopping at Walmart. It is it is an incredible place. It, it really is. I mean, the, the scale and efficiency and the uh, um, amount of consumerism that is possible in one place, I mean, not a one-stop shopping, it is... It is really a, a wonder of the modern world, I have to say. I mean, when you're in Walmart, and it's true of, of Kmart or some of these other places as well, um, or was true. Uh, but you see the, the logistics and the products, and it's, it's incredible. 
But the reason you can buy a comfy T-shirt for, I don't know, five or six bucks, eight bucks, uh, is in part because of labor costs in other parts of the world. Cotton is not particularly expensive to... Uh, to grow and, and, and harvest, and so we and we have a great logistics in place in order to get you these products. So what I'm trying to say is that there are things that are not going to change just because we want them to change. And if we're going to talk about manufacturing and making our manufacturing sector more robust, we have to be honest about the fact that a lot of what's a lot of the the changes that have happened are the result. A lot of the offshoring or, or whatever are the result not of bad trade agreements. Although that's a part of it, and they certainly should be looked at but of mechanization, of increases in technology. In, in a lot of industries, one, or one person can do the work of what would have required five people even a couple of decades ago in terms of their actual economic output. So you have fewer people that are employed in some of these industries, even though the industry itself may be more productive. It's paradoxical. And now you have to balance out, okay, well, what do we, what do, we do about this? Do you put protections in place for workers, even if they're not dictated by the market, but rather they just make us feel good? I mean, do you go down the path of minimum wage, for example, which we know doesn't help workers the way it's intended to, but it feels good, so we do it anyway? Do we engage in some degree of protectionism because we just want a core of U.S. jobs in some industries here, even if it's not necessarily economically sound? These are all very difficult questions. The president mentioned... When he was uh, doing his showcase today, he spoke specifically about uh, shopping centers and retail employment. And this is another area that I've been looking into and researching, and I have, uh, I have close associates uh, who work in this industry. And I know a bit about what's going on and some of the changes and disruptions there. But, you know, I'll talk to you about that. I want to talk to you about why your local mall may be almost empty now, why malls are closing, why retail jobs are disappearing at breakneck speed, uh, and a whole bunch of other factors. Because, look, if we're going to talk about making America great again and we're going to discuss Made in America Week, we've got to be very clear about what's really happening. Because, sure, we want we, what, you're do, what you're seeing the president do is creating a climate of optimism and action, but the specific policies— we need to look at more closely and understand what will really help, what's just a result of the global economy functioning as it will, whether we want it to or not, and what is a trade agreement problem, or where could we have a little more assistance for U.S. workers. So we look at all of this, and we'll talk. I'll talk to you, about though, about uh, brick-and-mortar stores, your local mall, and retail jobs uh, after the break. Stay with me. The gentleman who was in charge of uh, Omaha beef, they do beef, he hugged me. He wanted to kiss me so badly <laughs> because he said, it, our business is a whole different business now because you got China approved. The other administrations couldn't even come close. And I told him, you know how long it took? One sentence. I said, President Xi, we'd love to sell beef back in China again. He said, you can do that. That was the end of that. Well, there you go. Trump claiming a victory on uh, beef, which I, I'm a huge proponent of red meat, so yay. Found out recently a friend of mine has given, just given up red meat. We'll still eat all other animal products, but we'll not eat red meat. I just looked at him like, I mean, it's like we're not even in America anymore, man. Come on. 
but so th- there are some areas where the president, and, and that's one of them, right, with, with international sale of U.S. Uh, food and agric- you know, agricultural products, then a, a trade agreement can make a lot of difference, make a lot of difference to U.S. beef, uh, beef producers, providers. Um, but there are other places where nothing Trump is doing is going to have much of an impact. And he mentioned in the speech, I don't have the clip for you, but he said, you know, all these we're going to stop these stores from closing these, uh, you know, your, your mall that's shutting down or that looks like a, a ghost town. That's going to change. And I have to tell you, I don't think that will change because that's a function of a few forces that are not. Uh, they're not about government regulation. They're not about a bad trade deal. They are largely technologically driven. And, I mean, I'm somebody who now has become increasingly reliant on Amazon in a way that I, I realize is starting to mirror my usage of, of something like Google, where I'm just, do I need something? I just go on Amazon. Do I need it? The same way that when you have a question or you want to look something up, you, you tend to just go on Google. Yeah, there are alternatives for you. But... If it's convenience goes a long way and price goes a long way. And when you're talking about issues of convenience, price and everything else, Amazon and there are other mega retailers online, too. But Amazon is the first one that really comes to mind these days. Very tough for brick and mortar stores to compete. Uh, And that's having a massive impact as well on the workforce that goes to those stores. The retail sales in this country employs about 10% of the overall workforce, which is enormous. You know, we hear a lot about coal miners employ something like, I don't know, thirty to 40,000, I, th- I think. I'm going from memory here, so if I'm, I'm off on that, let me know. Uh, but we talk about coal miners, we talk about other industries that have far fewer employees than retail sales. Now, retail sales tend to be seasonal. You get people who are a second a lot of second earners in a, in a household work in retail sales. It used to be the case that you could do a retail sales job over the summer. That was very commonplace. I mean back in the uh, I saw some economic data from the Wall Street Journal about you know back in the 70s like 70% of teenagers had some form of of job at some point over the course of a year. Now it's like less than half, it's like 40%. So you're, you, you've got this entire generation that's coming up that doesn't have early work experience or is finding it harder, at least, to get that early work experience. And it's largely because in, in the retail space, you just don't have the same number of openings that you used to. Real estate prices still are, in, especially in urban centers, often very high. And paying for space, paying for a place to hold stuff that looks nice, that is appealing, that is has foot traffic or has parking or whatever, those are all costs that, you know, the Amazon warehouse and the uh, artificial intelligence that is used to make sure that we're getting all this stuff around and that also tells you, hey, you may want this thing or we know you wanted that, maybe you want this. Very tough to compete with that. Uh, I've got to talk more about this. I went a little long, but uh, we'll be back right after. Stay with me. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. So we could spend time, if you want, talking about Russia-Trump collusion, uh, but I, I'd rather skip it today if you're if you're good with that. 844-900-BUCK uh, if you have thoughts 
on what we are discussing or what we should be discussing. 844-900-2825 on the lines. I'm sure by tomorrow there'll be some other advancement to that story in the New York Times or the Washington Post. And I think this the, the major economic forces that the Trump administration is trying to tackle, not just this week, but with Made in America Week and in general, are important. Uh, just as a roadmap for other things we'll be getting to shortly on the show, I want to talk about the status of the health care bill, which is still very much up in the air. Uh, have some Additional uh, details and advancements to that story for you. Uh, we will also discuss some reporting on uh, hacking efforts aimed at the uh, voter registration databases in some states uh, or the state voter websites um, that this was reported in the Wall Street Journal. So we'll talk about cyber, cyber hacking and elections and what the future looks like with that. And then also uh, speech equals violence is a cons- is a construct that the left is increasingly embracing, and, and now they're just openly writing about it. But but they also will use science. They'll say hashtag science proves that speech can equal violence. You know, because of her feelings. Oh, shit! I'm sad. Um, eight four four nine hundred buck if you want to call in on any of that. So uh, before we get into healthcare, and I will, I, I want to move this along. I, I find some of these macroeconomic forces fascinating, and I, I think that they, while it's it maybe is for the purposes of radio, sometimes a better idea to sit here and just be like, oh, I hate the media. The media is terrible. You know, we do that. I mean, the media does. The media does stink, and I, I like to tell you that too. But this is something that it will. Uh, it will continue to play out, and I think we all see the effects. We all see what it means for us. And sure, when you look at it at a at a specific on a specific issue like whether or not teenagers have summer jobs, well, okay, not the end of the world. But is that a harbinger of things to come for retail? And I think the answer, by the way, is yes. And the contractions that are happening in retail are very serious, and they are part of a larger transformation of the workforce that's going on right now. Um, And as I said, there's a huge portion of the population works in retail. And there's this, uh, I I think it's fair to say there's a little bit of an idealization of manufacturing that goes on, Uh, you know, in in the post-World War II era, because of the explosion of manufacturing productivity in this country, and also the large numbers of people employed in manufacturing with, uh, relatively speaking, high-paid jobs with good benefits, and there's nostalgia tied to it, right? And so for purely political reasons, the Trump administration talking about the good old days when there were a lot of people who were working in manufacturing, that... You know, there are a lot of boomers right now who remember, yeah, manufacturing. You know, that was a time when, you know, there was a time when Americans could make 25 or 30 bucks an hour working for uh, a plant owned by a company somewhere or, you know, making American cars, making stuff. You know, we make things. And I'm here to tell you that we still make a lot of stuff. It's just it's made much more efficiently, which means fewer people are fewer people are involved in the making of them and therefore aren't getting a wage as part of that process. Those pe- or, or all of us, though, benefit from it in that greater efficiency means lower cost, and lower cost means that you can now buy a, a, a flat-screen LCD TV for, 
you know, that that's enormous for uh, hundreds of dollars that even a decade ago would have been like unthinkably expensive. Right. So we're seeing all these changes. I mean, you now carry around in your pocket. Electronics is one of the most visible ways we've seen the economy trans- transforming in helpful and useful and more productive ways. I mean, you now carry around if you have a smartphone, if you're listening to this show either on a smartphone or you just happen to have one, you carry more computing power than, uh, you know, would have been used to get to the moon back in the earlier days of the program, right? I mean, this is, it's profound what has happened here. Um, But there are costs and benefits to it. And one of the big shifts that's happened is the switch from manufacturing jobs as a percentage of the overall workforce in this country. So people who can go work at the, you know, whether it's the GM plant or, I don't know, Nike or what, whatever it may be, whatever major company, General Electric, right? They have switched from, there's been a switch from manufacturing jobs to service jobs. And this is how you have an economy that, at least at first glance, has incredibly low unemployment, 4.7%. But when you add in what those jobs are, and you also add into the equation workforce participation, you see that it's not quite as rosy a picture and that a service job that pays you 10 bucks an hour is very different from a manufacturing job that pays you double or three times that. Um, and so just being employed or not being counted in the unemployed, uh, these are ways that our perception of the economy gets skewed. Um, and, and I try not to fall into this category of robophobes, those who are afraid of robotics. Uh, but I do think that we are in for some nasty uh, or maybe I should say stormy seas ahead when it comes to the employment picture in this country, because productivity is going to be increasing by leaps and bounds. And it's one thing to say that you have, uh, you know, you're going from making uh, you know, VCRs to making DVD players, right? It's another thing to say that you're going to have entire business models like transportation that will be automated, meaning uh, automated, meaning you'll have no truck drivers. You'll just have essentially a self-guided, self-driving GPS system that's doing long-haul trucking and transporting goods across the country. That's coming. That's going to happen. It's just a question of when. Uh, same thing with taxi drivers, Uber drivers, uh, chauffeurs. These are all going to be careers that don't really exist in a matter of years. We don't really know how long. And we need to start preparing for that now because there will be displacement. Retraining is a nice thing to say, but retraining for a new career when you're especially in your 40s, your 50s, it's a tough thing to do. And who does the retraining, by the way? I mean, the government programs have had very mixed success uh, in those areas. So while the president's speaking about these issues, and I think he is well-intentioned, that I think he's also well-situated as somebody with real private sector experience to speak about them in constructive ways and to get the American manufacturing sector energized. Because as I was saying, the manufacturing sector is doing great. It's just not employing as many people. But we got factories that are churning out much more than factories used to and much better stuff than factories used to. So there's just more complexity to made in USA than, you know, standing around and cheering like a scene from Rocky Four for the USA, which, again, is a great feeling and it's a great movie. 
but there are some parts of this that are workable, some parts of this that can change, and the government and that the Trump administration can have a constructive role in it. And there are other places where it's just not going to happen. Uh, or it's going to happen in ways that there are some who benefit and there are some who lose. That's just the creative destruction of the marketplace at work. So uh, that's th- those are my thoughts on that right now. But you're not going to see a huge return in retail jobs. Just putting that out there. No way. Uh, and, and Amazon buying up and getting better. I keep saying Amazon, but there are others, too. Uh, these these mega corporations that are buying up competition and just becoming essentially complicated technology companies with major logistics operations attached to them uh, to distribute the products that are made by other uh, by other entities. I mean that's that's the way the future is going right now, and I don't see how that's going to change. Uh, so hopefully there'll still be some cute coffee shops in the future, and you're not just going to have a drone outside your window like your latte has arrived but you know you don't know you don't know and some of you're like latte buck i drink my coffee black health care bill is well we don't know if it's gonna go through or not it's maybe all gonna work out you could also argue that it is in some degree of uh, of jeopardy right now and you have the uh, the added uh, issue of uh, Senator John McCain, who is going to be away from D.C. for a while for health reasons after an operation. Uh, here is what the president had to say on this. We hope John McCain gets better very soon because we miss him. He's a crusty voice in Washington. Plus, we need his vote. They do need the vote. I don't really know what a crusty voices but they do need the vote and it, the longer that they wait on this i think the higher the odds become that you're not going to get a bill passed by the republican majority on health care after all this time after all the promises and that doesn't even really add into the or take into account for this discussion that this isn't even like a repeal and it's not a great bill senator Rand paul The real problem we have is, you know, we won four elections on repealing Obamacare, but this bill keeps most of the Obamacare taxes, keeps most of the regulations, keeps most of the subsidies, and creates something that Republicans have never been for, and that's a a giant insurance bailout super fund. That's not a Republican idea to give taxpayer money to a private industry that already makes $15 billion in profit. So it's not free market. It's not a repeat or it's not entirely free market, which it was never going to be. And I agree. Some of you have been have been uh, objecting to me saying, oh, it's not I, I can't you can't be a free market absolutist when it comes to health care, because we're so far from that right now that it, it's you know, it's like saying you're trying to you're trying to turn your your uh, I don't know, your, your hot dog stand profitable or you, you haven't been able to turn a profit and you're like, well, I want to be a hot dog billionaire. It's like, well, let's, you know, baby steps, right? Like, let's get there. Let's get there piece by piece. This is it's not going to happen tomorrow. So, you know, looking at uh, the realities of this health care bill, if it goes through, it looks like it's a little bit better. And we've talked to you about some of the details. Now, keep in mind, whatever the Senate passes has to go through conference with the House. And so there'll be changes in addition made to it. But it's... It is a uh, adjustment to Obamacare. It is not a repeal. 
and I think we all need to be quite honest about that. Uh, there are some who are saying, though, that this is a phase, this is a stage, this is a multi-tiered process, and we should move forward with it understanding that. Here's HHS Secretary Tom Price. The challenge that we have is that the bill itself isn't the entire plan. It is a significant and an important and integral part of the plan, but it's not the entire plan. What we're doing over at Health and Human Services right now is going through all of the rules and regulations that were promulgated pursuant to uh, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, those places where it said the secretary shall or the secretary may, 1,442 times. And we're looking at those and asking the question, does this help patients? Or does it harm patients? Does it increase costs or does it decrease costs? And where the answer is wrong, we're going to move it in a much better direction. Now, they're, they're pushing, they're adding more pressure on the Senate to get this done. And, and I think they're creating uh, or, or they're forming a narrative here of why this needs to get done, in part because uh, it's just the beginning. Right. So that's one way. So that shuts down at some level. The, oh, it's not a repeal argument, because if it's just the first of many actions that will be taken uh, by the Senate in order to make a better health care bill, well, I guess we should give them some time. Right now, do you believe that that's true or not? I leave that to you. Who really knows? Um, but that's at least part of how they're trying to sell this now. And then, of course, there's also the do this so we can do the next thing argument, which we've been hearing all along. They say that health care has to happen so then taxes can happen and then immigration, I guess, can happen and the wall can happen. I, I think those are still issues that are on the table. Here's uh, Representative uh, Duffy on this. So Tax reform will not happen unless we get health care reform done. This is something that we have to drive into the American people's minds because we're using budget reconciliation, these stupid Senate rules. And uh, in tax reform, it has to be revenue neutral. So every tax dial you move down, another tax dial has to go up. I agree, by the way, with these, these Senate rules they have in place. Maybe they should change some of the rules. Maybe they should get rid of the filibuster I, you know what is the purpose what were all those campaigns about that the republicans uh waged to get into power to be in the majority what was that all about if, if it was just to tell us now well we really need you know like we kind of need a super majority or else we can't do anything sorry bro like toads didn't tell you that but they were supposed to tell us that and they did not or they should have told us that Instead, we got all of these mock repeal votes that have turned out to be a mockery. I think they're mocking us uh, because they're not taking it seriously, or at least so far from what we've seen, they are not doing what they said they would do. So uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see when Senator McCain is back and able to be a part of the voting process. We'll see what uh, the campaign right now with you got Tom Price at, at HHS and other senators who are making the case, but some senators still against, even though they've been, I don't know, can we say politically bought off in one way or another? You know, a little more a little more Medicaid funding here, a little more taxation on high earners there, trying to keep the so-called moderates in play so that this thing can pass. Tom in Ohio on WWVA, what do you think about all this? Hi, Buck. I, I want to go back to what you were talking about in terms of, uh, and by the way, you gave a very good uh, description of, of probably what the job situation is going to be in a very near future. Thanks. And to me, to me that is the one of the main arguments 
for having a moratorium on immigration, or at least as, as, as much of a moratorium as we could possibly have. You know, this idea that, well, we have to bring people in to have the economy grow. Uh, well, the economy's not going to grow if we flood the uh, whole economy with people who are unemployed. I, and, you know, where does a person who's a U.S. citizen go when he or she is out of a job and you have all these people coming in? Uh, and, and then beyond that, you have the social problems with it. And, and I, I firmly believe, too, Buck, that we had to hold these uh, tech people accountable in terms of these companies to, to train American citizens rather than just coughing out and getting, getting somebody from some other country. And, and that may be involved getting the school systems uh, 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 really a, a hand-in-hand situation between business and schools more so than even what it is. I mean, Tom, why, why don't Americans get preference in all American universities over foreign students? Just as a matter of course, I—, I this is people look at me like I'm crazy when I say this. And I say, without federal tax dollars, a lot of these certainly without federal loans, a lot of these places would uh, be in a whole bunch of trouble. They certainly wouldn't be able to charge, uh, in the case of many private universities, upwards of fifty thousand dollars a year per student without federal loans backing up many of the students that are that are uh, taking you know that are going and, and taking on that debt burden. But why shouldn't we have uh, an absolute preference for Americans in admissions at places like MIT and Caltech? And you start to think about some of the long-term implications about uh, foreign students getting access to the best technical engineering, electronic engineering, uh, aerospace. You know, you look in the areas where we are training the rest of the world and you say, hold on a second. Isn't there a competitive issue here for us for the future? There's another aspect to that, too. When, when we bring people here in terms of a brain drain on these H-1B visas and, uh, you know, they become citizens and then they're uh, functioning in this country, we're actually also at the same time uh, keeping their, their homeland a bit poorer. Tom, uh, we got to head, head into a break, but I do appreciate you calling. I'm sorry to cut you off. Team, we'll be back with much more. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. All right, team, so uh, I I did want to spend a little time today on where the media is right now, because there's there's an unsettling quiet. Usually you'd think after what happened last week there would be uh, more, and I'm sure if you turned on MSNBC or CNN uh, right now on the monitors here in the Freedom Hut, I've got Fox on. Uh, but if you were to turn on some of those other stations, other channels, you'd probably see some follow-on and analysis and a super panel and then a mega panel and then the expert super mega panel and all this stuff about Russia-Trump collusion. And, and I, I do get—I uh, I, I am uh, in large part tired of it. But there's a couple things, and I, this is my only Russia-Trump discussion segment today, I promise. This is the only one. We're just going to do this one, and then we're going to move on to other stuff. Um, including uh, discussions of cyber hacking, but not Russia necessarily cyber hacking. I mean, I might touch on it a little bit, but uh, more generalized cyber and then discussing the the left. Oh, I've, I'll, I'll talk to you about the Dalai Lama later in the show. Big hitter, the Lama. Um, so we, we, we've got varied topics coming your way. But for right now, a little bit of what's going on here, because last week was supposed to be a a game changer from the press and all this. It was supposed to change the way um, that we think of the Trump-Russia collusion investigations because you had that Donald Trump Jr. meeting, and we've talked about that, right? You get the you get the details or the basics of it. Um, people were in a room. They said there was oppo research, and 
nothing seemed to really materialize, but we'll find out some details. I'm sure there'll be additional details from that meeting in the days ahead. We know the press was holding on to that for months. They, they already knew they had that. So this is probably why they've been leaning so far ahead on the Russia collusion stuff, because this this was the uh, ace up the sleeve, so to speak, although I don't think it's really much of an ace at all, but they certainly do. Um, and it's reflective, though, and the polling is reflective of a broader fight right now between people who have just completely disavowed the objective press, so to speak, because they think that it's nonsense and it's not true, it's not reality, and those who believe that the press will, in fact, take down the administration. Um, This is a a culture war, but a culture war specifically focused on the media. In fact, I think that uh, Washington Post columnist Carl Bernstein had some interesting comments on this. Bernstein, of course, you know, famous dude because of what he reported on back in the day. I think I just called Bernstein a famous dude. Whatever. It's one of those days. Here's what he said. We are in the midst of a cold civil war in this country, a political and cultural civil war, and all of our reporting is taking place in the context of that cold civil war. And not part part of the cold civil war itself is the configuration of media with Fox News with CNN being perceived by different sets of viewers as representing different truths, uh, when in fact Fox uh, has changed American politics as perhaps no institution has. Our politics has been changed inalterably by this right-wing counterforce, whatever you want to call Fox News. Isn't it fascinating that here you have a revered journalist of of decades in the business, and he brings up Fox as though it's the reason for the the, the hyper partisan atmosphere, and 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 Fox is this really this this nemesis of of objective journalism in his view. I mean, he didn't say that, but that that I think is the implication you take away from it all. And well, okay. So those of us who believe that the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, go down the line, all these different news organizations are Democrat and leftist. We are supposed to feel weird about having one channel that does not fall into that category. There's one channel that does not fall into that category. And there's talk radio, which you're listening to now, that does not fall into the category of dominated by the left. Well, that there's a channel that can have such an impact, what does that say? That half the country by and large, agrees with the perspective of only one channel, and there are all these other channels. And this isn't, look, this isn't a pretty old debate now, an old an old discussion uh, ever since there has been an alternative media, meaning a conservative media, meaning a media that sees the world and presents issues through a similar lens as half the country. They always speak about it like it's some fringe. There's some, oh, there's right-wing echo chamber. Well, half the country's right of center, roughly speaking. And don't they get to have their views at some level, in some way at least, represented in the media? Isn't that normal? What's bizarre, and this is really what I'm trying to get at with Bernstein and his commentary here, what's bizarre is that they don't recognize what an incredible and untenable situation it is to have complete media dominance by one party. That that was the case for as long as it was in this country is 
astonishing. And that it, that, you know, in my formative years, you know, in the, in the, in the 80s, I mean, you know, you had Reagan as president, that you could, that you have Republican presidents and you have Republicans winning national elections uh, to Congress and governors and all the rest of it, even though a vast majority of the press corps that's informing us all is against them, really tells you something, doesn't it? The country is, by and large, not aligned with the press. And this is what they haven't figured out yet. They they still cling to this notion that they're right and the press will come along. I mean, or the, the, the people will come along. The press is right. And the people will realign with them because that's where the facts are. And they just have this fundamental misunderstanding. And, and I think that's re- that's reflected in uh, among the, the greatest uh, Democrat media darlings right now on the scene, Jake Tapper over at CNN. He, he said this when he was speaking to uh, Jay Sekulow, Donald Trump's one of Donald Trump's attorneys and a, and a surrogate on the issue of the meeting and all the other things that are happening here. This is what Tapper said to him, in part. This is just an excerpt. Or Senate and House Intelligence Committee investigations into Ukraine and the DNC and the Clinton campaign, I'm happy to discuss it. But that's not what's going on right now. Um, and I know yeah, Isn't that interesting that there isn't one? But go ahead. Go ahead, Jake. There isn't one because nobody from the Ukrainian government met with anybody from the Clinton campaign. But moving on from that, you're talking about yeah. the legality. And I understand you're a lawyer, but you're also yeah. a man of, right. of faith. Isn't it kind of important whether or not what Donald Trump Jr. and Manafort and Kushner did, isn't it also important whether or not it's legal, whether or not it's wrong, whether or not it's ethical? Well, um can we just take a step back here from when you have one of the most revered Democrat pundits posing as TV journalists, right? I mean, he's really he's a he's a Democrat, but on TV, it's all objective, right? That's that's the. That's the guys, that's the ruse, that's the game that's played. But here he is saying, you know, is, doesn't it matter that if it's unethical? I just, did, did we think that there was the same sense of outrage and the same questions about ethics with the Clinton Foundation, which anyone who's just not in the, in the business of looking buffoonish admits is, is a giant conflict of interest and a huge pay-to-play scheme and a slush fund and and was a polluting of charity was a pollution of charitable giving um and it was really all just about the clintons and it, it was a massive global effort in narcissism and uh clint clintonian grandiosity uh did, did we get that sense are we really going to be lectured by the press now about whether it seemed remember the now they're kind of conceding or at least a little bit saying that it doesn't seem okay maybe we can't get them on the illegality charge but it's unethical it's slimy that's what they want to get to At, can we really listen to a press corps that will defend hillary clinton and bill clinton ad infinitum i mean they, they will defend them endlessly do we really have to hear about morals and ethics from them now? Now, now we get to hear about a, a dirty campaign tricks. And by the way, his comment that, J- that Jake Tapper made there about how, and it was very sort of flippant and dismissive. Oh well, no one from Ukrainian, uh, no one from Ukraine met with anyone from the Clinton campaign. Well, well, they, there were Ukrainian officials that met with an intermediary of the Clinton campaign who was paid by the DNC who was getting opposition research that probably was the reason Paul Manafort had to get fired from the political camp from the uh, Trump campaign 
So it wasn't like a nothing. It actually had consequences. And this is all the the article in Politico is, you know, Ukraine worried about backlash for sabotaging Trump. But, you know, let's just dismiss that out of hand. Let's just dismiss it. Politico didn't realize that people would go back and look at that reporting and figure out, hold on a second. So there was somebody getting help from the Ukrainian government to try to help Hillary Clinton. And that person was passing information along to the Clinton campaign and to the DNC during the election. But not much of an investigation into any of that. Right now, keep in mind, I think that it's, you know, it's totally fair to get information in a, in political information from whomever you're getting it from. And if we had gotten or if the uh, Trump campaign had gotten truly damning information on Hillary Clinton in that meeting, nobody would have, you know, in the meeting with Donald Trump Jr. and Kushner and Manafort, nobody would have said after the fact, oh, my gosh, how could you ever have taken such a meeting? Right. That was the risk that they did not foresee when they took the meeting was that if it was nothing, it would look like they were getting help from the Russian government. And it certainly wasn't worth it in that respect after the fact. But, you know, here we are uh, getting lectures on, you know, it, it looks it looks unethical that they did that. Uh, the Clintons, I mean, you the same people who were revered in the media who were telling us that Bill Clinton lying under oath is not really a lie under oath because, you know, it wasn't an issue that matters to people. Now look at Americans who say, I don't really care about this Donald Trump Jr. meeting. I don't really care about the implications of it for, you know, future campaigns and, and how they conduct themselves. I just want a, a strong economy, American national defense and and secure borders. Right. I mean, I and you have the media just wagging a finger in our faces about this. Oh, you know, you you foolhardy Trump supporters. Can't you understand why this is so important? You just you can't lecture us on the importance of fair play and ethics and uh conducting yourself with a with a certain decorum in politics and be a Clinton supporter and be taken seriously. You, you can't do it. I don't want to hear it. it. It's just it's laughable. And yet here we are. Here we are. We're going to we're going to continue to hear it, by the way. It's not it's not going to stop anytime soon. You know, they just will not give this up. Trump is uh, Trump is evil. Trump is a bad guy. His family members are bad. Everything about them is bad. And they were crying wolf before about this. They're going to keep crying wolf about it going forward. That's what I, that's what I see happening. Because um, this this meeting, with I thought about it more over the weekend, this meeting with Donald Trump Jr., I just don't care. I wish they would get the story straight and not give the media even more to work with than they already have. But it's not a strange thing for me to, you know, to think about this in the context of a cold civil war. Uh, we know what side the media is on. And it's not on the side that I want to be on right now. And I know people say, well, you're in the media. Yeah, I mean, right-wing talk, right? Doesn't really count. Uh, Not the big media. Welcome back, Team Buck. As I've been telling you, it is Made in America Week, the Trump administration focusing in on this aspect of the agenda. Uh, American manufacturing, uh, bring back those jobs, increasing those jobs that are already here by helping factories to expand and uh, getting rid of troublesome regulation. These are all promises the Trump administration uh, says they will follow up on after a campaign that made these center points. Well, we're joined now by a company that has been featured 
featured in the Made in America Week, Liberty Bottle Works. They're the only metal bottle made in the USA. They've been showcased in the White House's Made in America campaign. We're joined by Sean Hill, who's Liberty Bottle Works Director of Sales. Sean, thank you for calling in. Hey, Buck. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. All right. Well, tell, tell us. It's Made in America Week, my friend. Tell us about your company, how this idea came about, and why Made in America is so important to you. Well, you know, uh, our, our company was founded on, you know, the whole Made in America principles and doing things the American way, American quality. Um, and that's why all of the equipment that we use is American made and custom made for us. All of the materials we use are American made. Um, and then we do all of our manufacturing right there in, in Washington State, Union, Union Gap, Washington. Um, it's something we're really you know, passionate about because when you buy a Liberty bottle, you're not just supporting you know, 35 jobs at our factory, but you're also supporting the jobs at the factory where we source our metal and the factory where we manufacture our caps, and, and it's all right here in the States. And so you're supporting hundreds of jobs with every purchase instead of just one bottle, and it's that ripple effect that we are passionate about and we're excited about. Um, well, what do you? By the way, where does most of the industry? I mean, so you're the only uh, Liberty Bottle Works is the only metal bottle made in the in the USA. Where are most bottles made? I mean, you know, who, who are the dominant players internationally in this industry, and why is it so hard for American companies? I mean, I assume you're the only one because this is a difficult thing to do. Why is that the case? It, it is. Um, you know, the the sourcing, the equipment, and the materials. You know, we want the highest quality food grade really healthiest materials on the market and, and they're expensive. Um, and then, and then the equipment, the manufacturing is also very expensive. And so for that reason, uh, everything else is manufactured overseas. Uh, I'd say about 90% is in China, uh, a few in Mexico and then, uh, in, in other Asian countries, um, and India as well. Uh, so, you know, it, it's really, because we make everything from scratch in our factory, we know every molecule and every ingredient that goes in it. So we can we know that it is the healthiest on the market, and we know that it is the greenest on the market because we're not polluting the environment when we manufacture. Yeah, I mean, t- tell me, a, Sean, tell anybody. me about what what some of you know. Let's without having to pick on any particular country here. What is it? What is shoddy metal? A shoddy rather uh, metal bottle manufacturing mean you know what what are some of the environmental damages and also what are some of the problems for folks who might be getting those products well you know it, we tend not to you know we don't like to focus on the negative but the, the fact of the matter is you know the EPA can't regulate what material is going into the bottles that are made overseas um you know and a lot of times it, when when you're smelting metal down it is really easy to throw other metals in with stainless steel and smelt it all together to lower the cost and stretch it out. Um, and, and that happens a lot of times overseas. Now, not everybody. Um, and, you know, I can't point fingers at all, but again, you know, I know where our metal comes from. I know the men and women who make it and I know exactly what's in it. And that, that is what we really feel is the American difference. And you guys are an environmentally friendly company as well over at Liberty Bottle Mm -hmm. Works, right? How so? Uh, well, you know, we actually just uh, originally started using completely recycled material, and then it was harder and harder to source, and we just started again. Uh, we have a new supplier, Alcoa Metals, that's awesome, uh, and, and they are giving us 100% recycled aluminum. Um, and then all of our scrap aluminum in our factory, we have different stations set up that collect harvest, vacuum up every every shred and every ounce of extra material and recycle it. So we don't throw any of it away. Uh, so it goes back into the creation of more metal for more bottles. You so, were in D.C. Uh, today, Sean, for President Trump's uh, Made in America push. How was that? And uh, you know, what are your thoughts? 
You know, it, it actually was really amazing. It was neat to see the other uh, companies represented and the other states represented. Um, it, it really gave us encouragement to know that we're not alone. Um, there's other companies that are facing the same issues that we face uh, and the struggles that, you know, we face and the competition overseas. Uh, and, and, you know, as long as we can band together as a voice, um, you know, it's not just one person or one administration. It's us as a company coming together and recognizing, hey, we need to support American jobs. We need to support our own economy. It's our responsibility. It's not, not somebody else's or the government. It's our responsibility to support each other and grow together as a nation. No, no. What are really some of the neat. challenges specifically of, of making things here in America that you see from your industry or that you're just aware of from being involved with a, a made in America company and the manufacturing process? And, and what would help some of those problems? Well, you know, a huge, a huge part of it is is the cost. Um, you know, because people are so used to purchasing things from overseas that they they associate a value with it, and you know, they're just when it comes time to pay at the cash register, I'd rather pay five dollars than twenty dollars any day of the week. Um, and so, I think that if we can source more raw materials here in the states, that's going to help lower the cost. You're not paying uh, transit fees and and everything with that, and so that'll help lower the cost. And then. Uh, just making it a mindset of, uh, you know, the overall value of the product that you're getting. Um, and then, you know, as sales increase, then costs can decrease. And, uh, and so that's something we're really excited to see. Sean Hill, Director of Sales for Liberty Bottle Works. Uh, is there a website for you guys? Uh, yeah, www.libertybottles.com. Uh, you can also catch us uh, at Liberty Bottles and hashtag Liberty Bottles as well. All right. Thank you so much, Sean. We appreciate it. Hey, appreciate the work you do and the support, and uh, have a great night. Thank you, you too. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Canada has made a former Guantanamo Bay prisoner and self-professed confessed terrorist with connections to Al-Qaeda a multimillionaire. Uh, It's just Hard to believe, even as you read the story, but here it is. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, gave Omar Khadr a big payout, a reported $8 million, um, alleging civil rights violations. So what happened here is Omar Khadr, for those who, who don't know some of the backstory, is uh, was a young man, I think he was 50, yeah, he was 15, when in in Afghanistan, he was born in Canada, by the way, so he's a Canadian citizen, but he was 15, he was in Afghanistan, and he threw a grenade during a firefight that killed U.S. Army Sergeant Christopher Spear, and he also grievously wounded uh, another U.S. soldier, uh, and Cotter then went to Guantanamo. Cotter was um, held there and confessed to having connections to terrorists. Um, and, uh, oh, by the way, Lane Morris is the individual who was blinded in that. He was blinded in the firefight, uh, blinded by Omar Cotter. So Cotter gets let out of Guantanamo, sent back to Canada, and the Canadian government gives him $8 million. He sued for $16 million in 2015 after he had been released uh, on bail. And, you know, here we are. We're still fighting in Iraq. We're still fighting in Afghanistan. Uh, We have the constant threat of terrorism, of jihadist terrorism, looming over our societies. 
Here is somebody whose father was uh, talking about Omar Khadr now. His father was a known Al Qaeda associate. Uh, his family was radicalized. They were they were jihadists. They were in Afghanistan trying to assist the Taliban and their terrorist allies. And he killed a soldier of United States military, blinded another one. And he's held at Guantanamo Bay, of course, says he was terribly mistreated at Guantanamo Bay, and then is sent back to Canada. He's on bail and gets $8 million and an apology from the Canadian government. Uh, And and you've got people, I I read these editorials from, from Canadians who are saying that that Cotter uh, was failed by the Canadian government and that Canada should be ashamed and that this is they're making uh, necessary recompense here. I mean, it's just it's just insanity to me. Eight million dollars, everybody. I mean, he's now a rich man. He's 30 years old and he is a murderer. Uh, by the way, for those of you who say, oh, Buck, he's he's 15. Uh, he was 15 at the time of the firefight. We have tried people in this country for murder as adults younger than 15. And this is somebody who would be tried for murder as well as the grievous wounding, as I said, the blinding of another uh, U.S. Army soldier. And it's it's just appalling. I mean, I, I don't know what it will take for people to wake up here and for the, the left. And remember, this is Canada. It's not the United States. So you know, let's just be clear on that but for the canadian government to write a huge check taxpayer cash go to this guy and apologize to him uh is is just it's just beyond the pale now the the upside of this such as one can find a thing here is that the widow of sergeant spear um has sued cotter and I believe she already she already won a judgment, but Cotter didn't have any assets. And so now there may be assets for her. Yeah, she won a $134 million wrongful death judgment against Cotter in Utah a couple of years ago. So now there may, in fact, be assets for her to go after. Um, but so in a sense, the, the widow of Sergeant Spear may get money here, which at least at least, the, you know, there'd be some some upside to this bizarre decision by the, by the Canadian government uh, to do this. And it's Trudeau, though. He's a very left-wing, very, very progressive guy. Uh, and, and it, look, it's, it's known that detainees uh, at Gitmo and elsewhere in, in the War on Terror allege mistreatment. This is, not, this is nothing new. We've heard about this many times. Um, but you know, eight million dollars. I mean, what do you get for mistreatment as a U.S. citizen in a, in a federal prison, by the way? I'm always amazed at how the, the media treats these terrorists as though they're, you know, they're, they're just on the edge of, of uh, you know, they, they can't handle these difficult conditions they're put under and everything. We throw U.S. citizens in terrifying uh, prisons in this country where there's people, you know, in our pop culture, people always making comments, making jokes, which are not funny, by the way, at all about sexual assaults uh, in, in federal prisons, you know, rape in prison and all this. And, and you know, when was the last time that 
a U.S. citizen who isn't a murderer of U.S. soldiers and isn't a terrorist got a check for $8 million. Uh, when was the last time a Canadian citizen, I know it's the Canadian government, when was the last time a Canadian citizen got a check for mistreatment in the prison system for $8 million? I mean, come on. This is just outrageous. Uh, and I have to think that that terrorists, uh, jihadists, are, are mortal enemies, see this behavior, uh, see what's going on here, these, these headlines and that, that Cotter, Omar Cotter in Canada is getting $8 million of taxpayer money, and they got to think to themselves, you know, this is all we really need. We just need the West to self-doubt. We just need Canada, America. We need the countries that are the leading lights of freedom and that are the centerpieces of Western civilization. We need them to think that they're no better than the rest, that in fact they aren't nearly as good as they think they are, that they cause a lot of problems in the world, and they have a lot of making up to do for their past wrongs. And their, their transgressions should be met with, uh, with contempt by the rest of the world. Uh, if they believe that, meaning if we believe that about ourselves... I think the terrorists, the jihadists, are in a long-term strong position against us. Trump mentioned this in his speech about Western civilization and Poland. You know, do we have the will to defend ourselves and our civilization or not? If we really think that we are no different from some authoritarian regime that throws people into dark dungeons, and if we really think that we uh, should be writing checks to murderers and terrorists... Uh, because somehow that, may, that that proves a moral support, superiority. I know this is Canada, but Canada is our, uh, as close an ally as we have and mirrors us in many ways. And that this can happen there makes it feel like it wouldn't be that hard for it to happen here. I mean, here we got the President of the United States when it was President Obama uh, always downplaying terrorism and always making it seem like it was less less of a concern and less of an issue. So our lack of confidence in our country and in our values and our willingness and Canada's willingness to view itself as needing such intense corrective measures when it comes to war on terror uh, is a vulnerability, and it's a vulnerability that our enemies, no doubt, are, are going to exploit, and it's, it's deeply troubling. All right, team, uh, we will hit a break here. We'll be back in just a few. Stay with me. Over the break... Uh, it came to my attention that there was an issue about dress code. <laughs> I'll be honest, uh, this is not something that was covered in my new speakership orientation ceremony. Um, the sergeant of arms was simply enforcing the same interpretation of the rules as under my predecessors. Uh, this is nothing new and certainly not something that I devised. Uh, at the same time, that doesn't mean that enforcement couldn't stand to be a bit modernized. So that is why we will be working with the sergeant of arms to ensure the enforcement of appropriate business attire is updated. Some of you may no doubt recall that ridiculous controversy where people were saying that uh, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, because he is a a sexist, uh, misogynist, you know, hashtag mansplaining, hashtag Ryan-splaining, uh, hashtag patriarchy, uh, that there was a dress code for women who were visiting the Speaker of the House in the Speaker's lobby and that the sergeant at arms uh, had enforced this code. And immediately the press jumped on this or some people in the press jumped on this as evidence of all the things that I just said 
uh, of the, the Handmaid's Tale made real for our time, you know, about that dystopian future where women are uh, oppressed sex slaves. And it, people just went, went crazy on it. And then within short order, thanks to the Internet, we, of course, were able to find out that there was nothing uh, strange about Paul Ryan's rule because it wasn't Paul Ryan's rule. It was a hundred-year-old dress code that was in effect for Nancy Pelosi's entire tenure as Speaker of the House, without so much as a without so much as a boo-hoo from people. Oh, I just like really don't want to have to do the Nancy Pelosi dress code. You know, you figure that if it was so onerous and so horrific and oppressive, someone might have figured this out. Uh, years ago, when a, a woman was, in fact, the one who would have been in charge of whether there was a dress code for those visiting the Speaker of the House. Uh, but, but of course not. And the, by the way, the prohibition was on whether you uh, women had to have s- sleeves on their dresses and no open-toed shoes. I don't get the no open-toed shoes thing. I will tell you that a senior NYPD person... Uh, on the civilian side, was reputed, and I won't use his name because I don't know if this was true, but I was told that he saw a guy show up for my office uh, for his paperwork processing at police headquarters at One Police Plaza in shorts and fired the guy, or not fired him, but rescinded his offer of a job because he showed up to One Police Plaza on his day off, mind you, to get processing paperwork wearing shorts so some that was the story i don't know if it was just told to frighten new hires but that was the story that i was told and knowing the guy in question uh, it would not have surprised me one bit some people take the whole dress code thing very seriously i'm always of two minds about it on the one hand i think that a dress code can be a very uh, useful thing I, i think that it does send messages both to the people around and to you yourself i think that business attire uh, creates more of an atmosphere of conducting business in certain situations. Uh, but I'm also somebody who's all about comfortable shoes. And uh, I, yes, I, I, I go and buy champion shorts a size larger than I need to and just get pairs of them for like $10 off of Amazon and just keep lots of those champion cotton shorts so I can just chill whenever I want. Uh, I mean, I maybe I can neither confirm nor deny that right now here in the Freedom Hut, maybe there's a pair of sweatpants that I keep here. And and maybe maybe there's two pairs of sweatpants. Maybe I've got uh, an oversized commie bear t-shirt that I throw on if I feel like it. I mean, you know, neither confirm nor deny. So sometimes a dress code, that's one of the great things about radio, by the way, is it's all about your voice and comfort and you, know, you can't see. I, I could be sitting here right now and you guys wouldn't even know. I could be wearing a, a, a Snuggie which I don't know if they still sell those, but they, you know, they were like the blanket that you wear. Uh, or I could be sitting here wearing uh, PJs that have the feet built in. You know, you just don't know. That's why radio is great. But dress codes, I think, can be very useful. I, I think they also sometimes are uh, a bit onerous. I will tell you that jacket and tie is never comfortable for men. And I know people say, oh, Buck, no, no. It's just not, okay? Compare it to a sweatshirt and sweatpants and then tell me that your jacket and tie is comfortable. We have to tie something around our neck to constrict our very breathing. I mean, it's like in the old days with ladies having to wear uh, the, um, 
It, what's, it, what's it called? A, a corset, which I think sometimes even had whale bones in it, which was, you know, just terrible that they had to wear this stuff. Uh, but, you know, we have to wear uh, essentially a, a, a silk uh, strangulation device, uh, which is also known as a tie. Those of you wondering, by the way, the tie in French is called a cravat. And they call it a cravat, and that's where it became fashionable because, of course, Paris back in the day used to make everything fashionable. And that came from the cravati, who were Croat mercenaries who joined the army of Louis XIV, the Sun King, and they wore brightly colored cloth around their neck, and that became fashionable. So the tie is, in fact, originally a military mercenary fashion taken from Eastern Europe to Paris, and then from Paris became prominent all across Europe and then in America and around the world. That's where we get the necktie, my friends. Uh, so uh, I don't think that, uh, well, I was going to say formal wear. I just think it's funny, too. You know that uh, black tie is not the most formal. Black tie is actually was dressed down. That was like what we think of now as black tie was what just gentlemen wore to hang out and have drinks and smoke cigars uh, back in the day. And in fact, white tails uh, is the more fancy version. You know, you can't even keep up with all this stuff. Oh, but on dress code. So the Speaker of the House thing, Paul Ryan's fixing it, and and that's just funny because no one cared until it was a Paul Ryan issue, and then all of a sudden we're being led to believe that, you know, Paul Ryan's, uh, he's a bad guy, he's a patriarchy guy, he's, you know, all this other stuff that they say, mansplain, all that. And, and sure enough, you know, that was all a lie, but people like to get outraged at Republicans, particularly Republican men. But there's another issue now, and it has to do with the LPGA. And the question is being asked whether the LPGA, with its new dress code, remember this is women's uh, professional golf, uh, are they being body shamed? And I was like, well, what is the dress code for professional golfers, women on the professional golf tour? And I uh, looked this up, and why is body shaming an issue? Which, for those of you who are wondering, body shaming is just a general term for mocking or criticize someone because of their body shape or size. So I was thinking, I mean, golf clothing is generally pretty standard stuff, isn't it? What's the new dress code? It turns out that women on the LPGA were wearing increasingly tight-fitting and revealing clothing, uh, including leggings and plunging necklines and miniskirts. And the Women's Professional Golf Association is cracking down on this. And I have to say, I, I completely disagree with the LPGA. I think that athletic attire uh, for a professional sport should be encouraged. So if women want to play golf in what uh, women tennis players wear, they should be completely allowed to. I mean, if they don't want exposed midriffs, I guess, I mean, maybe we draw the line that it's not beach volleyball out there on the 17th hole. I get it. But I think that this is actually an instance of, uh, yeah, that's right. Maybe the, the patriarchy is kicking in a little bit here with women's golf and uh, not allowing them to express themselves and be free on the golf course with uh, lycra and other synthetic fabrics that allow freer movement. See, I'm in favor. On this issue, I'm a sports feminist. I would like the women to be able to wear more athletic stuff. So if they want to play golf in yoga pants, they should be allowed to. I think the LPGA is being a little a uh, little bit of a, uh, you know, a little, a little bit slow on 
the the changing times and changing fashions. So there, this is these are my different views on uh, my differing views on dress code and dress code issues. I know you're like Buck. What, what are you? Hey, I learned a lot about the LPGA today. I was reading about it on Fox News. Uh, we are going to come back in just a few moments here. We're going to talk about cyber and also words and whether they can be the quote equivalent of violence. We'll be back with much more. Stay with me. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. You are now entering the Cyber Operations Bunker. Outside comms will be disrupted. You will observe information security warfare conducted in real time. America. This is the fight you cannot see. This is the fight that will determine the future. This is Cyber Ops. It's a headline certain to get some attention from the Wall Street Journal. South Carolina may prove a microcosm of U.S. election hacking efforts. Now, we've been hearing about whether or not the Russians, quote, hacked the election for months. But this report, which is, of course, coming from the Wall Street Journal, which is at least center right, uh, puts uh, puts some granularity into the issue, gives us a bit more detail, writes that there were nearly 150,000 attempts to penetrate the voter registration system on Election Day in 2016. And it gives additional numbers about other states uh, like Illinois, where there were even more attempts by possible hackers to get into various election databases and systems. But this does not necessarily mean that anything was changed or that uh, in any way it would be accurate to say that the election of 2016 was hacked. What you're seeing is actually just much more a reality of the cyber world day in and day out, which is that there are thousands, tens of thousands, perhaps millions of efforts when you add in all the different malware and, and uh, automated intrusions, as well as individuals who are trying to get access to information for their own nefarious purposes happening all over the globe. Uh, we've started to pay more attention to the possibility of a catastrophic cyber attack on commercial enterprises. For a while, we've been uh, aware of the possibility of what is a, a cyber 9-11. And, and there have been a lot of hearings about this. And there has been focus from the government side, at least, for years about the possibility of cyber war being used as a precursor or an addendum to actual war. Uh, but now that the uh, commercial sectors are hit with ransomware, which means that a program infects a computer and then says that you either pay a ransom online for it or else your data can be destroyed or can be dumped uh, in public view to embarrass a, a company. So this is just a form of, of use. It's like data hostage taking where your computer is the, the point of entry. And uh, this is now getting attention because of a few recent major incidents uh, that in affected millions of computers around the world, including uh, one known as the, the WannaCry uh, ransomware attack that affected computers, infected computers in over 150 countries, hit millions of machines, and even hit hospitals 
in the United Kingdom. Uh, so there were these UK hospitals that had their records shut down. When all of a sudden people realize that you can't get access to your medical files in a hospital environment because of some uh, some cyber hackers somewhere who have released this uh, this malicious uh, this ma- malicious program, this ransomware program, then everyone starts to pay uh, much more attention. There was also a ransomware cyber attack back in June called Petya that affected reportedly a hundred uh, over a hundred companies in America and Europe. So this is now something that can't really be ignored just by everyone. This is now a, a reality in our, in our everyday lives because it's hitting companies, it's hitting individuals, and it, it, the number of cyber intrusions, cyber hacks, malware, ransomware is just going up all the time. We really are in a new era in which no one is safe from the effects of cyber war and cyber hacking and the sophistication of these various efforts is only getting uh, stronger getting more intense and we could be hit by a cyber attack on the commercial side or on the uh, military side that is crippling it's just a question of when and this is now forcing companies to take the whole issue of cyber much more seriously and so Whereas there was a time that your uh, your chief information officer or your IT guy was somebody who was probably associated with uh, Dungeons and Dragons and had uh, awkward social skills and just told you to restart your computer whenever you had a problem. Uh, now the chief information officer at a lot of companies, not even just tech companies, of course, where that's a primary position, uh, is somebody of tremendous importance because... To be competitive in the current commercial environment, you have to have an online, you have to have a major digital presence in a vast majority of industries uh, that are global. And so now uh, the possibility of a data breach that cripples or even destroys your company is something that everyone has to take quite seriously. So the the commercial side uh, businesses are waking up to the reality of hacks going on all the time and are having to take steps. Uh, it seems now that also our civilian government systems, voting systems, uh, voter registration, these are also uh, looked at as vulnerable targets. Now, I think a lot of the focus on this comes because of the Russia-Trump investigation and, uh, like I said, Russian hacking. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's not a problem. And all you have to do, really, is raise the possibility of uh, tampering with votes, changing, uh, changing votes in, in machines in one state, in one district in a national election. And it could create really serious perception problems about whether we fully have faith in those systems that determine who has power of the most, uh, the most important and far-reaching government and military machine in the United States on the planet. So... This is very important stuff. Now, when you look at the numbers, though, about hacking and you look at what's going on, it's easy to see it and just say, well, there's this is such an imminent problem, but it's been a problem for years. And uh, if the numbers are what they are, why isn't there a sense of absolute urgency right now across the board to deal with this? And there are a few things. One is that some of the worst hacking threats uh, come from 
individual mistakes at a company. So you can have the best IT systems around, but if somebody sends an email to one of your employees that says, click on this link, uh, and the, through what is known as a phishing scheme, you know, phishing is getting increasingly sophisticated. Uh, phishing is now not just, hey, I'm a, I'm a, a Nigerian prince, and if you give me your bank information, I'll give you $10 million. A lot of people used to fall for that, by the way, and now people generally laugh when you bring that up, but it, it was a, a scam that resulted in, according to the FBI, millions and millions of dollars in damages. But now the phishing schemes are much more sophisticated. They're built to look like a normal email that you would get. They're made to seem like they're from your IT desk or they're from Google or Facebook or a major company that you are using all the time, a major internet company. And once you give them your credentials and password, they've got you, they can steal your data, they can steal your stuff. And of course, the authorities aren't just overwhelmed with all the different hacking attacks occurring every day. They also have limited reach when you're talking about individuals who could be operating not just overseas, but from hostile territories overseas. You know, our government can go ask the Iranians all day to go pick up some hackers that we think were operating on Iranian soil or any other number of countries you can think of. And uh, they're very unlikely to get far with that issue. Right. So uh, hacking is a way for foreign governments, foreign entities, uh, sometimes working together, sometimes separately to hit us here without any risk to themselves. Uh, they, they don't have to be physically present in the United States or they don't have to be anywhere where we have jurisdiction. So you're, you're seeing now that this is an ongoing and escalating cyber war that can't be ignored. And when you put it in the context of the investigations over uh, voting uh, and the election and hacking the and hacking the election, what you see is that I think the media has with their hysteria over a changed or over changing the election outcome in Hillary and Trump, um, which did not happen, uh, they have at least created, and this is a, a side effect or a, an unintentional corollary of all this, they've at least created an opportunity to have a, a discussion about, well, okay, it didn't happen in 2016, but could it happen in 2020 or in the midterms? How hard would it really be to get into either voting machines or the databases of registered voters, not necessarily to do anything as sophisticated as changing votes and covering their tracks, although I, I think theoretically that would be possible too. Uh, you may need physical access to the machines, which people bring up. Air-gapped computers is still a very important security measure, meaning computers that aren't internet-enabled and connected, and that obviously is a means of protecting you from internet intrusions. Uh, but even if they just were able to bring down a, a state's election website on the day of the election, that might raise concerns that there was further hacking. That might call into doubt the results. You see, I don't believe that our adversaries are as much invested in one candidate or another as the media has been leading us to believe for months now. Uh, I reject that. But I do think that, especially in countries, uh, Iran, Russia, China, a any major U.S. adversary that has strong cyber and technological capabilities and where there is a resentment of U.S. democracy promotion and 
the uh, the U.S. view of those regimes as either partially or wholly illegitimate, even in the case of Russia, where they have elections because of crackdowns on press freedom and corruption within the state, uh, that a means of hitting back at us is just to force the American people or bring the American people to question the credibility of our election systems. So you see, on the one hand, we've been told, oh, it's because the Russians wanted, the media's been saying the Russians wanted Hillary to win. And I've always thought that was, that, that just seemed dubious to me because how can the Russians know that Trump would be more favorable to their interests when nobody really knows where Trump's going to come down on, on any issue, right? I mean, if Trump is a loose cannon, even if you're a conservative American in the Republican Party, uh, the, what, the, the Russians are sure that he's a better bet for them than Hillary? That always seemed to be faulty logic to me. But just by shutting down some systems or creating some problems on an election day, you could have very real questions. I mean, look, look at what happened in 2000. wasn't a, a hacking issue, but just with uh, hanging chads and all of the problems with the recount and how politically acrimonious, how tense that became, went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And those were, relatively speaking, minor unintentional issues of uh, voting irregularities caused by literally the system, right? The voting machines themselves, in some cases, having defects. If in in the midterms or if in the next presidential election, hackers from anywhere around the world, whether state-sponsored or not, uh, were able to get into voting systems and just create some degree of chaos, even if they didn't change the votes, it might be enough to affect perception of whether the election is legitimate. And that would have uh, real political ramifications, I think, for us here at home. So this report from the Wall Street Journal, uh, and it's, well, it's, it's based on a report from the South Carolina State Election Commission, and they've also cited some information about how the Department of Homeland Security is increasingly involved in this, realizes that it's a very real concern and is monitoring this and trying to work with states to protect their cyber infrastructure. Uh, But this is a problem that I think is only going to get bigger. And they want to talk about Russia hacking the election, but really the discussion is, well, could someone else, could anybody hack the upcoming election in a way that uh, is truly damaging? Uh, That's something that we need to be paying much more attention to, I think, based on the reporting that we're seeing about attempted intrusions. All right, team, uh, we've got much more coming up here in just a few minutes. Stay with me. Asking everybody to do their fair share. When everyone engages in fair play and everybody gets a fair shot and everybody does their fair share. That was President Obama, a little trip down memory lane for all of you. Uh, Fair share, paying your fair share, that was one of the quintessential Obama phrases. But, you know, when you look at the data, you find out pretty quickly that Republicans and Democrats have a very different view of what's fair and how to pay what's fair. Republicans are better tippers than Democrats. Republican males in particular Uh, And up in the Northeast, especially, so Republican males in the Northeast, like yours truly, tipped a median of 20% when dining at a restaurant. Democrats were the worst tippers, giving 16% or so, sometimes even as low as 15% on average, depending on the region. 59% 
of Republicans say their typical restaurant tip exceeds 15%. This was up on Fox Business. Just 46% of Democrats say the same thing. You know, this does filter into the broader mentality, right? Uh, Democrats always want more government spending. They, They like to be generous with other people's money. It's really a, a corollary to Margaret Thatcher's The Problem with Socialism is you always run out of other people's money. Uh, the problem with the Democrat Party is that all of their do-gooderism is based on taking money out of other people's pockets. You know, they don't want to pay more themselves in taxes. They could just give whatever percentage they want to the federal government. It's actually on your tax form. You can give whatever you want. You could give 100% of your income to the federal government if it made you happy. I would think that that's borderline insane, but you could do it. But no, Democrats pose as being humanitarians, pose as caring so much about the common good, the common welfare, the downtrodden in particular, the lower classes, the economically disadvantaged, but they don't want to make their own sacrifices. And this mentality is pervasive in the Democrat, uh, on the Democrat left. It's true of environmentalism as well. They want broad, sweeping policies that affect everybody else, but they like to exempt themselves. This is why hypocrisy is one of the defining characteristics of the modern Democrat ideology, because when you're a collectivist, it's all about what everyone is forced to do, but not about what you, as someone who's advocating for those policies, should also have to do. You can always separate yourself out. After all, you're one of the good ones. You should get some credit for pushing for those climate change policies or pushing for those redistributionist economic policies. And this survey about tipping, people working very hard in restaurants, they live off those tips, it's essential for those in the service industry. Sure enough, Republicans have more respect for that work on average than Democrats do. Democrats figured that the safety net or something else maybe will kick in. Republicans are like, I, I, I like to give people uh, money for their efforts, and I like to reward hard work. Uh, by the way, one in five people, according to this, this survey, at sit-down restaurants don't leave any tip at all, which I, I was shocked to see that. And 31% never leave a tip for their hotel housekeeper. That also, I think, is, is messed up. But it says here that 30% don't leave a tip for their barista, which is the person who makes coffee, by the way. I'm sorry, but I, I'm, I'm a 20% tipper in restaurants, and I'm a, uh, I'm a 7 to $10 a day tipper in the uh, you know, hotel for the, the lady who's cleaning, or the man, either one, who is cleaning up afterwards, the uh, uh, housekeeping uh, attendant. But... The barista who's charging me $4 plus for an iced coffee in New York City, I'm, I'm sorry, there are limits. You know, if, if coffee's now going to be $5 a cup, then just put it, make the price $5 a cup. In fact, my least favorite thing is when I get a cup of coffee here in New York City and it's $4.27. You know, can, can we just make it $4.50 or $4 or, uh, anyway, I, I don't, I'm sorry, I know. This is where I draw the line. Dude, why don't you like baristas? Like, why are you going to make it? Like, dude, they deserve their fair share. I'm sorry, $5 a cup? That is, that is, or $4 a cup. That is fair share for baristas. So I do not tip baristas unless they say something particularly funny or brighten up my day in some way. 
All right, we're going to talk about violence as words or words as violence in just a few years. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. There was a campus protest recently that you probably didn't hear about, and it did have to do with a controversial speaker, at least controversial according to one group of students on campus who believe that he is known to incite violence. So here we are with the speech incites violence uh, idea, which I will get into more in just a few minutes. Uh, But this speaker, it may surprise you uh, to hear, was none other than the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama himself, the 12th son of the Lama, the flowing robes, the grace, bald, striking. Now, of course, who could object to the Dalai Lama, of all people, coming to speak on a college campus? Well, at the University of Southern California, San Diego, there, were, uh, there was a group of Chinese students who claimed that the Dalai Lama's peaceful message is actually a, uh, a cover for his instigating of political violence. Now, just as a, as a bit of background for those of you who are wondering about this, a lot of people know about the Dalai Lama but don't know really anything about the conflict that's going on between Tibet and China. Uh, most of them just rely on whatever they pick up from the series of rock concerts back in the late 90s called Tibetan Freedom that had to do with this issue, well, in a, in a very generalized sense. The basics of it are as follows. Tibet is a, a tiny Buddhist country uh, in between India and China, and since 1951, it has been occupied by the Chinese, and there's also been a campaign ongoing for the uh, inter- intervening decades of, uh, well, immigration intended to uh, create a minority of uh, ethnic Tibetan Buddhists with the importation of Han Chinese. And uh, China has been very aggressive with its expansion of, uh, well, destruction of Buddhist Tibetan cultural artifacts and monasteries, and also the importation of Chinese uh, culture and way of life. And you have an exile government that is led by the Dalai Lama in in northern India, in a place known as uh, Dharamsala, and there's about 100,000 followers of the Dalai Lama for whom the Lama is both the spiritual and temporal political leader, and there's an effort, the Dalai Lama, of course, is a part of this effort to restore the Lama to being the leader of Tibet, but Tibet is currently uh, under the jurisdiction of the Chinese, and the Chinese are showing no interest in trying or, or in uh, being willing to give it back. The uh, Lama is a <laughs> big hitter, the Lama. Uh, the Lama is a well-known political figure uh, and considered to be somebody who's, uh, f- well, he's famous for his wisdom, for his uh, peaceful and uh, genial approach to everyone and everything, and is popular with the Hollywood types. In fact, I don't know if this has dropped off, but for a while... There were uh, people in Hollywood who were becoming Buddhists, that Buddhism was a fashionable religion. And certainly among the fastest growing Eastern religions in the United States is, is still Buddhism to this day. 
and I believe Buddhists are the fourth most represented uh, religious group in the United States after uh, Islam, Judaism, and, of course, Christianity, far and away, the most prominent. If you consider atheists to be their own group, then I think the numbers would change a bit. Uh, but in terms of traditional religious belief, Buddhists, I think, are fourth. Anyway, so the Lama is a, is a famous guy, well-known for being peaceful. But here you go. You've got a campus protest. It just happened the last few weeks. Campus protest going on here at a, at a University of California school with uh, Chinese students who believe that the Dalai Lama is a a crafty dissembler, a dishonest fellow, someone who is all about peace, love, and happiness in front of Western audiences and Hollywood elites and celebrities, uh, but they disapprove of his message because of the violence. There has been violence in Tibet between uh, Tibetans and uh, Han Chinese and the Chinese government. Uh, I think that uh, in this in this dispute, I side with the Lama, but also in terms of the way UC handled this, no surprise, guess what? They didn't cancel the Dalai Lama's speech, despite there being students on campus who said that it equaled violence. So they actually got this one right at uh, UC San Diego. They allowed speech, even though there were some who were saying that speech, in this case, of a man most identified with peace, but they said that speech equals violence. I want to talk to you more about that concept, actually, in just a couple of minutes here and uh, discuss a, a just crazy New York Times editorial on it that says science supports that leftist position. We'll be back in just a few to hear more. Stay with me. Among the flimsiest and worst arguments that you will hear these days from the progressive left, speech equals violence is almost in a class by itself. This has led to a lot of the craziness that we see on college campuses across the country, uh, this construction that words that you say are basically the same thing as hitting somebody is the pseudo-intellectual justification for all of the censorship and, uh, in fact, violence on campuses to prevent speech. Because if speech equals violence, violence in response to speech that is designated as violence becomes acceptable. This is the crazy convoluted logic of the left, and I'm not exaggerating this. Uh, I'm not taking their argument and uh, trying to misrepresent it in some way. In fact, now we can add a layer to this. It's not just, according to many on the left, that speech equals violence. And of course, understand that it's speech that they don't like. They get to determine what speech qualifies as violence and what speech would have protection under the First Amendment and what speech would be uh, necessary for the free exchange of ideas. They get to be the determining factor in all of that. They, of course, are the censors based on this. So there's a tremendous shift in power that occurs with this whole speech equals violence paradigm because if somebody that you are debating with gets to just decide hey you know what that speech that you're engaged in is the same thing as violence they can shut you down without having to engage in any of your ideas but the layer that we can add on to all of this is that speech equals violence is now scientifically based my friends, hashtag science. Oh, I love science. You know, I'm like a, I'm like a science nerd. I really, 
I'm, you know, a progressive Democrat who just, you know, climate change and, and I believe in science. This is now part of the argument. I, I, I do not exaggerate. In the New York Times, no less. When is speech violence? Now, this was an editorial, and, and it says things like the following. Words can have a powerful effect on your nervous system. Certain types of adversity, even those involving no physical contact, can make you sick, alter your brain, even kill neurons, and shorten your life. Your body's immune system includes little proteins called pro-inflammatory cytokines that cause inflammation when you're physically injured. Under certain conditions, however, these cytokines themselves can cause physical illness. What are those conditions? One of them is chronic stress. Okay, now, I actually don't disagree with the hashtag science here. I mean, this is legitimate science in the sense that, of course, there can be physical impact from psychological trauma, and words can lead to psychological trauma. If someone comes up to you and says, oh, by the way, you may not know this, but your spouse just died in a freak accident, and you believe that person, you, you might be physically ill, or you might pass out at that passage of information. So, but we, we all understand and, and know this, right? So this is not anything new, the idea that words have an effect on your brain, and your brain has an effect on your body. What the left doesn't seem to understand is that just because you don't like something doesn't mean that it then gets to go in the category of physical illness-inducing uh, attack. And they, they, she goes into the uh, author here of this editorial goes into some detail about well why specifically um, why specifically speech can be a form of violence of and and how we can separate this out because the big problem then is well who makes the determination as to what's a the the what's the equivalent of a verbal threat to somebody that can cause actual physical symptoms and saying that you know I think that traditional marriage uh, between a man and a woman is really the only form of marriage that society should promote for example as an idea if someone were to say that is is that now a form of violence too that might make someone physically ill but where is the where do you draw the line who gets to draw the line who makes the determination well, of course the left wants to be making these determinations which is why they push this ideology as much as they do and so back to this piece if words can cause stress, quote, and if prolonged stress can cause physical harm, then it seems that speech, at least certain types of speech, can be a form of violence. But which types? This question has taken on some urgency in the past few years, as professed defenders of social justice have clashed with professed defenders of free speech on college campuses. Trigger warnings are based on a similar principle that discussions of certain topics will trigger or reproduce past trauma as opposed to merely challenging or discomforting the student. The same goes for, quote, microaggressions. The scientific findings I describe are uh, empirical evidence for which kinds of controversial speech should and shouldn't be acceptable on campus and in civil society. In short, the answer depends on whether the speech is abusive or merely offensive. Now, this is the entirety of the debate, the issue. This is the heart of it right here. So you have this 
this expert writing the New York Times from the perspective, of course, of the progressive left, writing that speech can, in fact, be a form of violence, and therefore you can restrict speech as a violent act based on content. And the immediate question that follows that is, well, who gets to determine which content falls into which category? And she comes up with this uh, abusive versus offensive test. Now, this is how we know the argument is completely utter crap. Who, who's going to, what is the difference between abusive or offensive? Who, who will make that determination? This is like somebody sitting around saying that, well, the real problem here, let's make it a matter of law whether I'm making you sad or just unhappy. How do you distinguish that? How can anyone make such a, uh, a make such separation? It's just completely, uh, completely and utterly intellectually indefensible. She goes on to write, "That's why it's reasonable, scientifically speaking, not to allow a provocateur and hate monger like Milo Yiannopoulos to speak at your school. He is part of something noxious—a campaign of abuse." There is nothing to be gained from debating him, for debate is not what he is offering. She doesn't even last a couple of paragraphs, this editorial columnist. Uh, she doesn't even go more than a few sentences. Her name is Lisa Barrett, uh, who's a professor of psychology at Northeastern University. By the way, as an aside, as I have told you before, in the medical profession, psychologists and psychiatrists are the most progressive, the furthest left. Surgeons, by the way, tend to be conservative. Uh, so, a little fun fact for all of you at home. So she's saying in this piece that Milo speaking at your school is part of a campaign of abuse. Therefore, it's like a systemic and continuous abuse. But he's only showing up one time to speak. Well, if Milo speaking one time, and you know, and I, I don't like to just focus on this one person who I think likes, you know, obviously likes attention. Uh, but if, if someone coming to speak on a college campus one time can be shut down because it's part of a systemic campaign of abuse, then any person speaking in any context could be said to be part of a broader campaign of, quote, abuse and therefore shut down because of hashtag science as a form of violence. So let me break this. Let me just give some examples or break this down a little bit if i showed up at a college campus and i said transgenderism is not based in science it is a political fashion uh that in and of itself is an exchange of an idea right that is something that and i'm not even you know without getting the specifics of that position i'm just coming up with a theoretical right so i can state that but you see based on the framework that this professor and psychologist has come up with that speech could be disallowed because even though you could just say, well, that's offensive, oh no, one instance of offensiveness that falls into a broader narrative of offensive speech can be considered, quote, abusive and therefore is equivalent to violence, right? So me showing up one time at a campus and saying transgenderism is a political fashion, not a medical reality, I might be the the 10th person who said that, written that, been on TV talking about it that week. So I'm part of abuse, you see. I'm not just being offensive, whether you think that's offensive or not. So the standard that this person who's given the platform of the New York Times in which 
to write, the standard isn't even applicable. It immediately falls down. It falls apart. It cannot be applied. It falls into incoherence. It is self-negating. Never mind how, well, should never mind, but this is even a step beyond the arbitrariness of this abusive versus offensive standard. Uh, I am offended by ideas all the time. I am offended by a lot of what the Democratic Party stands for, and I suffer a fair amount of abuse from Democrats for my ideas. And yet I never feel the inclination to run and cry to the authorities. I mean, I'm not on a college campus, but, you know, I could run to the police or, you know, run out and say that we should pass laws. I could be promoting and advocating for laws that limit speech based on content because I understand that there is a, an essential principle that we cannot abandon. If we abandon the right to the free exchange of ideas, we have abandoned freedom. There is no other way to say it. There's no way around it. If the free exchange of ideas is not a fundamental, foundational concept in our society, in America, we are no longer a free people. We, we are allowing the left to erode what is most precious about our culture, about our society, about our civilization. Without enough of a fight, we need to be very clear on these issues and that someone with academic credentials and the platform of the largest newspaper or one of the largest newspapers in the country is writing that speech can equal violence based on an arbitrary and unenforceable standard and that science backs this up. That's the objective aspect, that scientifically speaking, speech equals violence. And now determining which speech equals violence is arbitrary. This is dangerous. This is, without exaggeration, a threat to freedom. All right, uh, whew, finished kind of on a on an intense note today, team. Um, thank you so much for being here, as always. Hope you are uh, enjoying doing a little perusing of the offerings of Team Buck gear, which you can get on bucksexton.com slash store. Hats, T-shirts, all kinds of fun paraphernalia with more to come. Please do check it out and share the show, if you don't mind, with a friend. Go to Bucksexton with America Now on iTunes and, uh, and download us. Uh, I would really appreciate that. Tell one friend this week, and uh, Team Buck will be growing by leaps and bounds in no time at all. We already are growing, but you can help us grow a lot faster. Uh, until tomorrow, my friends, we're going to have quite a week. I promise you that. Shields high.